Today's scripture, Matthew 18. As Jesus was walking by Lake Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and his brother Andrew. They were throwing a net into the lake because they were fishermen. Nancy. <laughs> Jesus said, come, follow me, and I will make you fish for people. So Simon and Andrew immediately left their nets and followed him. As Jesus continued walking by Lake Galilee, he saw two other brothers, James and John, the sons of Zebedee. They were in a boat with their father, Zebedee, mending their nets. Jesus told them to come with him. Immediately, they left the boat and their father, and they followed Jesus. Thank you so much, Linda, for that. And thank you, Wayne, as well. Wayne and I talk often about what a worship service should look like, what that means, what that should look like. And one of the things we agreed on, uh, we've agreed on most things, but one particular thing we've agreed on is that the point of a worship service is to direct our attention to the Lord. Amen. Not on us. People should go away not saying, man, wasn't Wayne such a great musician? Wasn't Justin such a great preacher? Neither of those things are true. Sorry, Wayne, just kidding. <laughs> um, but well, someone should go away from our church. When they leave, they should say, Jesus is glorious. I already feel that way, don't you? Thank you, Wayne, for the music you've chosen and for the way you presented that. Um, one of the songs he sang was Glorious Day. That song gives me goosebumps every single time. Uh, there's a part that he didn't sing of that song. There's a, there's a, um, it's a probably a more difficult part to sing, but the words say this, One day the trumpet will sound for his coming. One to the skies with his glories will shine. Wonderful day my beloved one bringing. My Savior Jesus is mine. I love that. Amen. That song is, is, uh, is, is a very powerful song. It takes you through the whole gospel. Birth, death, Resurrection, second coming. What a, what a beautiful picture of, of what we've been studying in the book of John as well. And then I exalt thee. Uh, what, a, what a great God we serve. He, sure, he certainly is far above the earth and he is above all other gods. Amen. There are no Amen. other gods but him. And scripture is clear about that. Let us open up in a word of prayer as we come to John 21. Lord, thank you for this day. Lord, we, we know and we affirm and we believe that you are exalted above all the earth. Amen. Lord, there is no one besides you. You are exalted above all other gods. Every other god that is fashioned by humankind is merely that, the fashion of humankind. Uh, you alone are God, and we worship you as, as Lord. God, we thank you as your as the song Glorious Day pointed out, as your word points out, we thank you that you sent your son to be born of a virgin, to die on the cross, to raise from the dead, and one day to return in glory. Lord, we thank you for that beauty of the gospel that brings us salvation. I pray, Lord, as we come to your word, as we study then now the application of the gospel, what do we do from here? I pray that as we look through this, as we look at this passage in John 21, that we would be submissive to you, that we would be submissive to your word, that we would understand your word, understand deeper the scriptures. Um, praise in your name. Amen. Amen. So last week we saw Jesus raised from the dead. 
Uh, and then he also gave his disciples a mission. He, he presented himself to Mary. He presented himself to his disciples on two different occasions. Um, and then with the power of the Holy Spirit, he, he sent them out to share the gospel. We saw that in, uh, in verse, uh, verse 21 of chapter 20. Jesus said to them, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. When he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. He gave them the Holy Spirit and he gave them a great commission. He said, I am sending you out into the world. The world the word apostle that we use often to describe the disciples, it means a called sent one. This is, uh, this is, he, they are then sent as apostles to, to, to the world. Uh, John then summarizes the purpose of the gospel at the end of chapter 20. He says, these things were written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So what has the gospel done to show this? Well, just for, uh, for a little bit, just a few of the things, we saw Jesus turn water into wine in chapter 2. We saw Jesus heal the royal official's son in chapter 4. We saw Jesus heal a person who could not walk in chapter 5. We saw Jesus feed more than 5,000 people with essentially five biscuits and two sardines in chapter 6. We saw Jesus heal a man who had been born blind in chapter 9. We saw Jesus raise a dead man named Lazarus back to life in chapter 11. And finally, we saw Jesus, we saw Jesus himself raised from the dead in chapter 20. Those things alone serve as proof, but the rest of the gospel shows over and over again how Jesus has fulfilled Scripture. He is the fulfillment of all the festivals going on that, that were given to the people of Israel. He's the fulfillment of the, te- of the temple. He's the fulfillment of everything. He is the greater Moses. He is the greater David. He is, as Hebrews would tell us, he is the great high priest. He is the prophet, the priest, the king. And he's the savior of the world. And the gospel of John has shown all of this. Chapters 1 through 20 present the life and ministry of Jesus and prove that Jesus is the Son of God and the Savior of the world. Now in chapter 21, the Gospel of John shifts focus from the life and ministry of Jesus to the life and ministry of the church. Uh, the, the, just as the Gospel of John started with a prologue in 1, 1 through 18, the Gospel also has an epilogue in chapter 21. The prologue lifts the reader up to understand the full significance of the person and work of Jesus Christ. So if you remember back to the back to the prologue, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him. Without him was not anything made that was made in him was life. And this life was the light of men. And then in verse 14, it says the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Then it says, tells us also that this only begotten is the revealer of the Father. That's in John 1, 1 through 18. Now, the the epilogue here serves to land the reader so that he may be guided into the newly established established relationship with, with God and the mission of God. So just as the epilogue lifts us up and helps us understand the full reality of who Jesus is, so the epilogue shows us and lands us and says, now what does that relationship with Jesus look like? 
Starting in verse chapter 21, beginning in verse 1, let's read 1 through, uh, 1 through 14, and we'll dive in. It says, After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed, revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of, Cana in, uh, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the son of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going to go fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore, said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard it, that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat. Uh, the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, so with the so and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus re was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So here we have this this miracle. It's a miracle that Jesus had performed before. John does not record this, this uh, other versions of this miracle or other times this miracle took place. But there were other times that Jesus had done the same thing with the disciples. Hey, have you caught anything? Nope. Cast your nets on the other side. And they cast their nets on the other side, and this same miracle takes place. So we've seen that Jesus has done this before. The disciples have seen Jesus do this before. So there's nothing new or unique necessarily about this particular miracle. However, we will look at and see the significance of what is taking place here. We'll see three things today as, as a way of application. First of all, we'll see that we will never reach our town apart from Christ. Secondly, we'll see that we must recognize our Savior's voice and give Him the glory. And third, we'll see that we are invited to join in and participate in the mission of God. So first we'll see that we will never reach our town apart from Christ. Jesus, when He, when he confronts the disciples, many, um, many scholars, some scholars have tried to look at this and say, well, see, they were supposed to be fishing for men, but what was, the problem was they were fishing for fish, not fishing for men, and so they were being disobedient. Well, Jesus doesn't make a big deal of that, though, does he? He doesn't say, what were you doing fishing? How come you were fishing? Why, why were you doing that? He doesn't make a big deal of that. But what the text does make a big deal of is that they weren't with Jesus. Right? Jesus, it says Jesus was going to reveal, them, reveal himself to them again, and this is what happened. And what do they do? They go out fishing without the Lord. 
Now, in all four Gospels, this is pretty fascinating, in all four Gospels, these disciples who were professional fishermen, as Linda read, these people were professional fishermen. They were mending their nets. They, this is what they did for a job. In all four Gospels, the disciples never catch a single fish without Jesus. Never. Now, how weird is that? Right? If you were a, say you were a professional house builder or something, a professional builder, you build houses, you do this all the time, and then you, get, you fo- start following Jesus, and then you can never build a house unless Jesus is there. Right? This is what this is kind of talking like. Like, hey guys, let's go build a house. Man, we can't get this together. We can't get anything going. And then Jesus shows up. You're like, oh, now we can do it. Right? The same kind of idea. These guys are professional fishermen. They can't catch any any fish unless Jesus is there to help them. So here they are again. They, 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 they make the, so the conflict then is not about fishing. The conflict in this story is about the, pre, the lack of Jesus being there with them. The fact that they have gone without Jesus. They were called to be fishers of men. Jesus then uses this fishing event as a metaphor for their new mission as fishers of men. Verse 3 tells us that they caught nothing. They caught nothing. In the same way, we, like the disciples, will never be able to reach our town apart from Christ. Never. We can try as a church to try to do things, but they will never happen apart from Christ. Let me give some illustration to this. Maybe give us some ideas on what this kind of looks like um, about catching nothing apart from Christ. We can run programs, but if we're running programs just for the sake of running programs, nothing's going to happen. We could have children's ministry. We could have youth ministry. We could have Bible studies. We could have all sorts of stuff going on. But if we're doing it without Christ, those programs are going to be pointless. Nothing valuable will take place. There's a book called uh, Autopsy of a Deceased Church written by a guy named Tom Rayner. He's the president of Lifeway, if you're familiar with the sort of Lifeway. He wrote this book called Autopsy of a Deceased Church, and, and he gave several things that, 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 that a church can, that things the church can do that, or when a church is doing these things, it's evidence that they're probably going to die soon. One of the things he brings up and one of the things that could be evidence of us being a church without Christ is if we were to make building upkeep a primary objective. You know, we've got to make sure we have good carpet. We've got to make sure that everything's taken care of. We've got to make sure that the property is looking nice. If that becomes our primary objective, now again, I'm not saying that it's a bad thing to take care of the building. That's not what I'm saying. If building upkeep becomes the primary objective, if making this building look pretty becomes our primary objective as a church, we're trying to do things without Christ. We are. Because what really is going to attract people? It's not the nice carpet. It's not the nice decorations. It's the gospel. That is what should attract people. That is what makes Jesus look glorious. Again, like we already said. The goal is for people to walk away seeing Jesus being glorious, not saying, and they have really nice carpet. You know what? Who decorates there? Because they're so cool. Right? If that is our primary objective, we are trying to reach our community without Jesus. Another thing may look like if we, if we hold on to past victories and see those things as, you know, our best time was 20 years ago when we did such and such. 
that was just the best time of our church. And if we continue, have this, continue and, and always have this view toward the past, we will never be successful. We will never, not successful, that's not the right word. We will never be focusing and doing work with Christ. Because we'll be continually looking at what we did in the past, or maybe what Jesus did in the past, right? But if our focus is always on that, what are we going to do today? Nothing. Because we'll say, we'll say, what can we do to serve our community? Well, we did something 20 years ago, and it was fantastic. Then we can have a great conversation for two hours about great things the Lord has done in the past. That's great. But then nothing gets done, Right? We can do that, and we, if we do those things, if we hold on to the past, we'll be functioning without, we'll be functioning as a church apart from Christ. What would that look like with Christ? So, as a church, what would it look like to function, to try to reach our town with Christ? I would say, first and foremost, the most important thing we can do as a church and as individuals in the church, as members of the church, is to pray. Amen. Just pray. Without prayer, nothing will get done. Because we will not have the power of Christ at all with us. Without, if we go without prayer, we are absolutely determining that we will go without Christ. We must be praying. We must also be sharing the gospel. How on earth can we reach people without sharing the gospel with them? It's impossible. I really hope we reach this town. I really want to see 150 people in this, in this sanctuary. I just want to see us reaching this town and see people come to Christ. Oh, you want me to share the gospel with them? No. No. How, how are we going to reach people unless we're sharing the gospel with them? Unless we're obedient to that command? How are we going to reach people? How are we going to reach our community unless we are seeking ways to serve our community? How can we? How can we, how can we uh, reach our community if we don't have, if we, without having a gospel-centered purpose for what we do? I talked a minute about programs. If we have a children's program and the, pro- the reason to have a children's program is because, you know what? We have to have a children's program because we've always had a children's program. If that's the only reason we have a children's program, how helpful is that going to be? Now, again, if the reason we have a children's program is we say, children need to hear the gospel, and those parents need to hear the gospel, and this is a way we can, get the, we can proclaim the gospel to these children. This is a, we, we want to have a youth program because we want to see teenagers come to Christ. We want to see teenagers grow in their relationship with Jesus. So that when they get into high school, when they get their driver's license, they don't fall off of the face of the earth. They don't start following the paths of the world. When they go to college, they don't abandon the church altogether. We need to have a gospel-centered purpose for everything that we do. From children's ministry, to Bible studies, to VBS, to whatever you can imagine that we do as a church. If our goal is not the gospel, then it's pointless. If our goal is just to entertain ourselves, if our goal is just to make ourselves feel better, then what's the point? We become a country club rather than a church. 
Another way we can do this with Christ is to look forward to how God can use us. Now let's, uh, we can, we can, we'll be looking forward to how God can use us as opposed to the opposite of that, looking back to how God has already used us before. Look forward to say, how can God use us now? What can we do? What do we want our church to look like? And think about those things. Look at the future of our church rather than the past of our church. These are ways that we can do things with Christ. And again, don't forget, the first and primary thing is prayer. Can't forget that. So we've seen that the disciples could not catch any fish apart from their Savior. Just like we cannot reach our town apart from the Savior. And second, we see that we must recognize the Savior's voice and give Him glory if we're going to be able to do anything. We must. This is part of the gospel, part of what we must do as a church, part of what we must do as His followers. We must recognize our Savior's voice and give Him the glory. Notice what, the, what happens here next in the next couple of verses. Beginning in verse 4 then. Just as day was breaking, they had been fishing all night. Just as day was breaking, just when the dawn took place, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And we don't know why, right? We don't know why they didn't recognize him. The sun might have been in their eyes or whatever else, whatever natural reasons there might have been. What the Gospel of John, excuse me, what the Gospel of John wants us to understand more fully, though, is that here we still the disciples not quite there yet. They do get there by the end of this passage. We'll see that, right? But the, the disciples are still kind of, they're not quite recognizing Jesus yet. And here they are. They, they, haven't, they haven't quite figured out that it was Jesus. Then Jesus says to them, children, do you have any fish? And what are they, how do they answer? No. Right? No excuses. Just, nope. You don't have any fish. And then Jesus says to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat you will find some. Remember, Jesus had told them this before, had done this to them before. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. Do you think that might have triggered something? Wait a minute. This is, we've been here. This is deja vu, guys. We've recognized, this has happened before. We've been out fishing, nothing's happened, and then some guy goes, hey, cast your nets on the other side. And what happens? Hey, there's fish. We recognize this. This has happened before. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, I love this. We have, we've been seeing this interaction between the disciple whom Jesus loved and Peter, right? Probably the author, probably John and Peter. This, this close relationship they have. We see them at the Last Supper. They're, they're communicating to one another and trying to figure things out. We see them together at Jesus' crucifixion. We see them running together at the resurrection. And here we have again the disciple whom Jesus loved, John, the writer of the Gospel of John. says, it's the Lord, right? John's always kind of reserved, right? He's always kind of reserved one. And then Peter's like, hey, guys, Right? He's the big, he's got the big presence. He's all in, right? John's like, hey, that's the Lord. And what does Peter do? He jumps in the water, right? He put, puts on his overcoat. He had been working, so he, had to, he took off the big heavy coat, put the big heavy coat back on, and just swims out, right? And the Bible even tells us they were about 100 yards away. Have you ever tried to swim 100 yards in a lake? Not in a pool where it's kind of controlled, Right? He's got, a heavy, he's got a heavy swim ahead of him, right? Pretty big, a pretty big swim, and he's got his clothes on and everything. He's going and swimming, right? So here he does. He's like, oh, it's the Lord. All right, I'm in, right? He just dives right in. He is head over heels, full on, going after Jesus. He knows that's Jesus, and that's how he responds. Isn't that how we ought to respond? So many times we respond, oh, 
Jesus stuff is going on? Okay. Hey guys, church is happening? All right. Whatever. Maybe I'll go, maybe I won't, right? What if we were like Peter? Church is happening, guys! Let's go! Hey! They're studying the Bible there! Let's jump in! Is there a lake in the way? Okay, let's swim in it! Who cares? Right? Hey guys, we have cars. You don't need to swim in the lake to get here, right? Or whatever else may be going on. Whatever else, uh, whatever other ways we have to serve the community. Right? If, if Jesus is at the middle of it, we should want to be here. Right? Do we have that enthusiasm that Peter had? And then we have to ask ourselves this question, right? We see then they catch fish, right? They, they, uh, it says he put on his honored garment uh, for he stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The disciples, uh, verse 8, came in, came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, about 100 yards off. The nets were full. Who did that? Was it the disciples? Is it all, their best, all their professional fishermen work, right? Got that full net of fish, Right? No. Who caused the harvest of fish? Jesus. Right? The disciples merely participated in the harvest. They merely, all they did was cast the net. In relation to sharing the gospel, all we are called to do is cast the net. We can't save anybody. Sharing the gospel with somebody is not about, well, if I'm not eloquent enough, they may not believe. If I don't have the right words to say, that might ruin it for them. You're not the one catching fish. Jesus is. You're the one obedient and casting the net. It's all you're doing. It's just participating. Jesus provides the full catch. Jesus receives the glory. So we see here, one, we see John recognizing Jesus' voice. And we see also that Jesus is the one who truly deserves the glory for this catch. So there's two, there's, those, there's two aspects here, two areas of application then, is that we must recognize our Savior's voice, first of all. We need to know the difference between His voice and other voices. We do. We learn that by knowing God's Word, Jesus never encourages action. We, we, we learn that by knowing God's Word, Jesus never, in, oh, sorry. We learn that by knowing God's Word. Sorry, I'm misreading my notes. I thought there was a comma there. There's not. That's my bad. All right. Uh, we learn this by reading God's word. This is how we learn what God's voice sounds like. Right? If you want, what does God sound like? Read the Bible. Right? Now, I'm not saying that you read the Bible and all of a sudden your inner monologue voice changes. And you're like, oh, that's what God sounds like. I'm saying you want to know what God teaches. You want to know how God acts. You want to know how God functions, how he thinks. Read his word. That's why he gave it to us, so that we could know him better. We also can, we need, we need to read God's word because Jesus never encourages actions that go against his word. I've told you the story before, of how I heard on a Christian radio station, a, a guy calling in saying, God, well, I, was, I, was, I was in the middle of divorcing my wife, and God led me to this other lady while we were, before the divorce had even finalized. Does Jesus do that? No! That's nonsense! God says, I am the Lord. I hate divorce. Divorce is never a thing that God is like, you know, if we, if we were to... I want to say this as gently as possible. 
Okay, because I know we live in a fallen world. I know we live in people, different people have different circumstances. But if anybody comes to me and says, my divorce was part of God's will. I, I get angry to the core hearing that. That's not part of God's will. God's desire is not for someone to get divorced. His desire is to see reconciliation. His desire is to see grace and forgiveness take place. That's what he wants to see. We need to recognize the Savior's voice. To recognize his voice, we not only need to read his word, but we also need to read it correctly. In other words, we need to read it with good theology. There's a, I listened to, uh, I got a new CD a couple weeks ago, and I was, I was listening to this at the beginning of it. At the beginning of it, the singer uh, kind of starts with a little bit of a sermon. It's pretty neat. Uh, he talks about the difference between theology and, and, uh, and doxology. You guys ever heard the song Doxology? Uh, Praise God from whom all blessings, I won't sing it for you because I don't want to hurt your ears. I know. Uh, Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him all creatures here below. Praise him above the heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. It's a song called Doxology. Theology, just by the word definition alone, is the study of God. Right? Theology is, is, is growing in your knowledge of who God is. That's by studying his word. That's by studying and reading good theologians who've written about and how to help us understand how to read God's word, how to understand God's word. This is through, uh, through study with one another and learning, learning that way. Uh, but uh, theology is, is, is um, things like the Bible teaches that God is, tr- is Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Right? That's theology. Um, so, uh, and, and learning other things about God, the fact that he is at the end of the day, unable to be understood completely, right? It's good theology. We can never completely understand God. It's good theology to know how, that Jesus Christ died for our sins. That he shed blood on a cross for our sins so that we might have life. It's good theology to know that Jesus is the son of God, right? Not some other person or just some good guy. That would be bad theology. So theology is, is, is knowing God accurately, right? Doxology is, is, is the response to theology. It's we know God accurately when we respond in praise. We respond in praise, we respond in service, we respond in whatever way, by, by, by praise and by actions. We respond to accurately knowing God problem with this is, 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 is this guy continues in his, in his sermon at the beginning of the CD. Um, he's a lot more eloquent than I am. He says it a lot shorter than I do, but that's because he's better at words than I am. Um, he, uh, he says, uh, many people try to, uh, try to do one or the other, right? Somebody can have a great theology, but if that theology does not lead to doxology, it just becomes dead orthodoxy, Right? Dead belief. Now, on the other hand, there's lots of people who say, you know what, give me all the praise stuff, but I don't want to learn more about God. I don't want to do all that theology stuff. That's hard, or I don't like that kind of stuff. I don't like that theology, that kind of stuff divides people, whatever. I don't want any of that. Just give me praising God. And I'm going to say the way he says it because it's, it's very pointed. He said, doxology without theology is idolatry. Say that again. Doxology without theology is idolatry. In other words, what we're saying is 
I don't need to know more about God to cause me to praise him. I don't need to understand doctrine. I don't need to understand those kind of things. That doesn't matter. What God wrote in his word is not really that big of a deal because what matters most is that I'm happy or that whatever version of God that I've developed in my mind, that that's what matters, that that's the God I want to serve. That becomes idolatry. So we need to recognize the Savior's voice. And that's, 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 that's the first part, theology, right? The second part is we need to give God the glory. We need to give Jesus the glory. That's doxology. So we recognize the Savior's voice and we give him glory. We must recognize the source of, our, of, of good theology. We further bring glory when we respond correctly by allowing him to correct our behavior or to correct our beliefs, right? If you are studying God's word and you come across, you go, and you didn't know that God was Trinity, right? And you're studying your Bible, you're like, wait a minute. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God in three persons. Oh my goodness. Okay, whatever. Right? If that doesn't change you, if that doesn't change what you think about Jesus, that doesn't change how you relate to God, then, not, then doxology has not happened, right? There's been no praise that has taken place. Um, or, or if you were to come across something in Scripture and you say, you know what, Scripture just told me, right, uh, that I'm supposed to love my wife as Christ loves the church. Ephesians chapter 5. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Well, that's, a, that's a pretty serious claim, isn't it? It's a pretty high bar, right? I have to love my wife the same way that Christ loved his church? That's a lot. Yep. Amen. Yep. Now, if I come to that and I say, okay, well, that's nice. And then I go back and I, now, honey, you go clean up the dishes. Right? Do that, woman. Right? You'd probably be like, what did you learn? You dummy, did you read Ephesians 5? Right? Did it matter to you? But no, if we respond to God by giving him glory, we come to his word and then we submit to what his scriptures say. And that's how we give him glory is by responding in obedience. <clears throat> we may think of other, other areas of doctrine like believer's baptism, right? We come to scripture and we see that there is no evidence of infants being baptized in the Bible. We come to scripture and we see that there is no evidence of, of people being baptized that are not actually believers. What do we say that? Well, but you know, the church has been doing it for thousands of years, so let's just keep doing it anyway. Or we say, we got to stop that. Right? The Baptist movement in, that started in England in the 1600s, it was part of what it was founded on, this idea that that's not in the Bible. We can't do that anymore. We shouldn't do that if the Bible doesn't say we can do that. Right? They responded in word, they responded to theology with doxology. Um, meaningful membership. Taking church membership seriously. Scripture takes church membership seriously. You're one body, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. All this language that describes the church, God takes the church very seriously. For us to look at that and say, well, you know, God really loves his church, but whatever. Who cares? Anybody? Hey, you want to come here? We don't even know if you're a Christian or not, but come on and join our church. 
Wouldn't, wouldn't that be dangerous to God's people? Meaningful membership is something that is a response of worship to God. It's to, to run his church appropriately and, and properly. What about humility? Oh, that's one of the things I've learned so much about. All these areas are things I've learned a lot about. I've been on the other side of church membership, not a big deal. Believer's baptism, okay, you know, sure, right? Whatever. Humility is one that's really punched me in the face. Right, I use that as a, as a great analogy because that's kind of how it feels, right? There's all sorts of areas where I show pride. And scripture says God wants us to be humble. God can only use people who are humble, right? For me to stand before you and say, well, you need to all listen to me because I'm great and I'm the pastor. So you have to listen to me now. That'd be foolish, Right? I, I, I am called to be a humble person. I am called to humility. I'm called to put others above myself, including my spouse, including my children, including every one of you in this room. Humility. These are areas where, where theology leads to doxology. Having a correct understanding of humility leads me to want to correct my behavior, to correct the way that I see my world. So not only do we need to, uh, we need to have Christ with us if we're, going to, if we're going to reach our community, not only do we need to recognize our Savior's voice and give him glory, but third, Jesus invites us to join in and participate in the mission of God. Look how he deals with the disciples at the last, this last section here. When they got on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place. Pause there real quick. Remember the other place we saw a charcoal fire? Anybody remember this from a couple weeks ago? At the crucifixion. Huh? Peter's denial, right? Peter's standing around a charcoal fire and he denies the Lord. Here they are now at a charcoal fire again, and we'll see next week that when, where, how Jesus restores Peter back to full, full relationship with him. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. Um, so Jesus, so uh, there's a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus has been cooking, right? Guys, your wife doesn't need to do the only cooking. Jesus cooked. You can cook, right? There you go. There's the, that's probably the only application you're going to remember. So uh, here we go. Jesus is here cooking, uh, getting it. He's, he's ready. He's got the charcoal fire in place, fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, this is so interesting. Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. Do you think Jesus didn't have enough food? And maybe he was like, oh, I only caught like three fish. So you guys need to bring the rest of them over so we can have enough to eat. No. Why did Jesus invite them to bring their catch? Huh? That's part of it, right? But what else is he doing? He's saying, come and take part in what I'm doing. Join me. Right? Take what you brought and join me. Yes, to, to give him glory. Absolutely. But he invites them to participate. He says, bring your catch. Now, this is, a, this is great. It comes and describes this. It says, Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore. This is not that Peter was like, had superhuman strength. He was like, I can carry 153 fish by myself. Right? He was joining the other disciples and helped them carrying it, carrying it forward. Um, it says there's a full, it was a full of, full of large fish, 153 of them. That's interesting, right? Why is it mentioned that there's 153 fish? 
right? Those scholars have debated all sorts of reasons why this is mentioned. Um, I think the best reasons is this. One, it proves that this is eyewitness, right? That the actual John who was there, who, who else would know there was 153 fish, right? Except for somebody that was there when it happened. And secondly, uh, this, this idea of 153 fish, it, show, it also shows the power and authority of God that facilitates the church's comprehensive, name, uh, comprehensive mission, right? Not only is it just like some fish, there's 153 of them. And it even says, it describes this catch. It says, uh, it says, and although there were so many, the net was not torn. Who's keeping the net together? Jesus is, right? I love how you brought that out. That's cool. Um, so the net is, is so full, only Jesus could have been keeping that net together. That net easily would have torn. Yet Jesus holds it together. This shows then that, that God has all the power and authority. He gives them this great catch. And not only that, he holds the net together as they bring the catch in. And, and he gives us the power and authority that facilitates the church's comprehensive mission. 153 fish is a lot. It's a lot of fish. It's a lot to do. The church has a lot to do. We are called in the Gospels to take the Gospel to all nations in Matthew 28. Go and preach the Gospel in all nations. Acts 1 says to Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. I got curious. I wanted to know how many countries there were in the, in the world. I, for, I don't remember this stuff. I wasn't good at geography. There's around 196 or so countries in the world. If you were to break that down, how most mission, missions organizations break it down in people groups. It's people that have their own distinct language and culture and things like that. That number is somewhere in the thousands, even maybe tens of thousands. I'm not sure the numbers on that. I didn't get a chance to look that up. That's the mission that we have. That's what the church is called to do. It's a big job. Who can help us with that job? Only Jesus. Only he can. Right? Only he has the power and authority to do that. In fact, that's exactly what he tells us in Matthew chapter 28. He says, behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He says, go and, and make disciples. Then he says, I'm going to be with you when you do that. And continuing on then, verse 12, Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of them asked him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus invites them to join him. He says, come and have breakfast. Come and join me in what I'm doing. Right? Come and take part with me. The disciples then also, they remember how in, earlier in the Gospels, the, the disciples were just a bunch of knotheads. Right? Continually, well, who are you? Right? What are you doing? What does that even mean? Right? They never, they can't ever get it together and they can't ever figure out who Jesus is. And here it is, right? They finally got it. None of them asked, who are you? Because they understood who he was. I'm sure they sat there, they probably had a ton of questions. How'd you know where we were? Right? How did you know how much fish? How did you hold that net together? How did you do, what did you, how did you do that? What did you, what else are we going to do? What's next? What are we going to do now, Jesus? They don't ask any questions. They finally learned how to respond to Jesus and just said, yes, Lord. Yep. None of them asked, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and so with the fish. This is now the third time the disciple, uh, that he revealed, was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. 
one commentator suggested this about verse 13 when it says that Jesus broke the bread and gave them the fish. It says, just as the disciples here share in the presence of God at this meal, so also does the church participate together in Christ at the Lord's Supper. Right? Uh, so he draws this analogy here from what Jesus is doing here. He is sharing in his presence with them. The same that when we come to the table of the Lord, when we come to the Lord's Supper, that we share in Christ's presence as well. Um, as far as application, then in this particular section, Jesus has invited his disciples to join him. Join him what? Join him to do what? What was his purpose in the entire gospel? To do what the Father had commanded him. He had a mission. He had a job. He had a goal. And he invites the disciples to join in that, in that goal, to join in that mission. We saw that the gospel from 1 through 20 is directing us, showing us the life and ministry of Jesus. He fulfills the mission of God. And now in, verse, in chapter 21, Jesus says, come on, guys, let's do this. Join with me as we go on to the, in, in participate in the mission of God. So will you join the mission? Maybe you're here today and you're not a believer. Maybe you're here today, you've heard the gospel before, you've, you know that Jesus has died for your sins, you know that he rose from the dead, but you've never made that decision to follow him. This is an opportunity to do that. Maybe you're here today, maybe you've been a church member your whole life, maybe you've been in church or, uh, in church, you know, in church or a member of a church for your whole life, maybe you've uh, been a Christian for, for a long time, but you've never participated in the mission of God. You've never taken that next step of obedience and said, you know what, I'm going to share the gospel with people. I'm going to participate in what our church is doing to share God's word. If that's you, we, we're going to, if that, either of those are you, we have an opportunity here coming up. We call it an invitation. It's really just a time for you to make a decision. You can make that in your seat. You can come up and talk to me. You can uh, kneel at these stairs if you wanted to. There's nothing fancy about the stairs. There's, nothing, there's not like magic here. There's nothing crazy going on there. It's just, just stairs, really. Okay? Um, um, but maybe you need to come to Christ. Maybe, maybe there's a, some area of your life that you need to submit to the Lord. Uh, maybe, you're, maybe you're looking for a church to join, and you want to join our church. We're going to take church membership seriously here. right? If you'd like to join the church, I'd love to talk to you about what those next steps are. Uh, come to me after. We'd love, love to talk to you about that. Maybe, maybe you've uh, been thinking a long time about baptism. You didn't know how to make that step. You didn't know, about, know how to do that. Come and talk to me afterwards as well, either, either right here during the invitation or after the service. I'd love to talk with you about, about how you can make those, those, uh, those steps. Let's pray as we move into the time.